Our scripture lesson is taken first from the Old Testament, from the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 53, page 847 in the Pew Bible. Page 847, Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, verse 1. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him, stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and for, from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. Because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He was put, he has put him to death, to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many. He shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for transgressors. And then from the New Testament, considering continuing our study of the Gospel of John, we turn to John chapter 1. Uh, We want to look at verses 29 through 34, but I'll begin reading at verse 26. John chapter 1, beginning at verse 26. John answered them, saying, I baptized with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who, coming after me, is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to to loose. These things were done in Bethbara, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, 
After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore I came baptizing with water, saying, I spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained on him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testify that this is the Son of God. As far as the reading of God's word, may he add his blessing to it. Beloved of the Lord, this passage in John that we're looking at today forms a kind of transition in John the Evangelist, John the Gospel writer's uh, introduction to us of Jesus. Up to this time, he has been focusing our attention on the person of Jesus. Now he begins to introduce us to the work of Jesus. These are the two great components of the Gospel, who Jesus is and what he came to do. Uh, You remember the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I determined to know nothing among you except to tell you who Jesus is and to tell you what he did. I I preached the gospel to you, uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the person and work of Christ. John, the evangelist, has been introducing us to the person of Christ who was in the beginning, who was with God and was God and through whom all things were made, who was made flesh and dwelt among us, whose glory we have seen, and whom John the Baptist also declared to be... uh, far greater than John the Baptist, John the Baptist, who by Jesus' testimony was the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. John says, uh, even though he was born after me, uh, he existed before me because he's the eternal Son of God, and uh, I am in comparison to him lower than the lowest slave, because only slaves were allowed to deal with people's sandals and wash their feet and so forth. And he says, I'm not even worthy to do that compared to him, even though, although John didn't know it, even though I'm the, the greatest of all the prophets, I'm, I'm nothing compared to this person. So we've been introduced to the person of Christ, but now John the Evangelist uses John the Baptist to introduce us to the work of Christ with this expression, son of, uh, 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 he is the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And this begins a series of uh, titles that are used of Jesus in the first chapter of John's Gospel that refer to to his work. He's also called Rabbi, which means teacher, because Jesus came to be a teacher. He's, He's called Messiah, which John translates and says, which means Christ, which translated means Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the Christ. And, and that has a whole lot of meaning to the Jewish audience that has a great messianic uh, hope. He's also called the, the King of Israel. Now, it's important for us to understand that All these terms of of who Jesus is and what he came to do, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, a a teacher, a Messiah, a king, these ideas were being exposed and brought out into the open very early in the ministry of Jesus. Even before Jesus begins his public ministry, John the Baptist is, is talking about these things. Uh, John the Baptist in their art text also mentions the phrase Son of God, which is what John the Evangelist has been uh, telling us in the first uh, 
20 verses or so, 18 verses of this uh, John chapter 1, all of it is about Jesus being the Son of God, and, and now he's saying this Son of God is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. All these terms are being bandied about by, by John the Baptist before Jesus even begins his ministry, which helps explain why the disciples of John the Baptist begin to abandon John the Baptist and begin to follow Jesus. Uh, They begin to follow Jesus because John the Baptist has been identifying Jesus by these terms as Son of God and, and King of Israel and Messiah and Christ and Lamb of God and Rabbi and so forth. The disciples of John hear this, others hear it as well, and they begin to turn from John the Baptist and begin to follow Jesus. But one thing to keep in mind in that regard is that all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, show us that the disciples of Jesus, though they follow him because they hear these terms, have not a great understanding of these terms. Um, They have some idea of what it means, but they really don't grasp the full import, and they have a lot of misunderstanding of these terms as well. And uh, so uh, we see that faith is something that that grows, something that matures, and uh, we need to keep that in mind, I think, with regard to our children. You know, I've, I've met from time to time parents who think it's foolish to ask a third grader a nine-year-old, to memorize the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, They say, you know, it's a vocabulary that's foreign to the child that the child can't understand. Well, the disciples didn't understand the vocabulary of the faith uh, with perfect understanding the first time they were introduced to it. And they were adults. You know, how do children learn any vocabulary? They, They learn it by hearing it. You know, when children first start to talk... They, uh, they mimic words that they hear that they have no idea what it means, but as they grow, they grow in their understanding of those words. And, and that's normal in the faith as well, that we hear words that we have some idea what they mean, but the, the more we mature, the more meaningful they become. And so it's important to, to keep that in mind. Now also, by, by way of introduction to our text, before we get into the, uh, the, the, the heart of it, I want to point out to you that our text in verse 29 begins with an interesting expression, the next day. The next day. What's that? Why does he say that? Well, if you examine carefully John chapter 1 and the first verse of John chapter 2, you'll see that John is introducing us to a sequence of days. And if you count the days, it turns out to be a sequence of seven days. Uh, he describes, the, he doesn't mention the first day until the next day, <laughs> but the first day is the day of his interrogation, then the next day is what our text is about today, where he says, behold the Lamb of God, and then there's another expression a few verses beyond the next day, and then uh, the expression the following day, that takes us four days uh, into uh, chapter 1, and then you get to chapter 2, it says, and on the third day, meaning three days after the first day. And and so you're introduced to a sequence of seven days. Now that's interesting, but it becomes more interesting when you remember that Genesis chapter 1 
introduces us to a sequence of seven days. And what are the first words of Genesis chapter 1? They are in the beginning. And what's the first words of John chapter 1? Well, it's in the beginning. In the beginning and a sequence of seven days in Genesis 1. And in the beginning and a sequence of seven days in in John chapter 1. And then you note that the seventh day in John chapter 1 is a wedding feast at which Jesus is not the official host, but nonetheless functions as a host on the seventh day, the culminating day, the the great day. Well, enough said. I just want to alert you to that pattern now. We'll say more about it if in God's providence I'm allowed to uh, come to you later on John chapter 2. But notice that pattern as it develops. Well, with that introduction in mind, let us now look at at uh, John's declaration, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, I need to uh, let you know that there are, there are critics of Scripture, uh, usually from the liberal branch of Christianity, who tell us that John never would have said this. That this is far into John, and John the evangelist is putting words in John the Baptist's mouth that John the Baptist never would have said. These critics of Scripture are trying to undermine our authority in the Word of God. And they point out that John the Baptist's understanding of Jesus was of a Messiah who was coming to bring judgment and who was going to destroy the wicked who would chop down every dead tree and cut off every dead branch and throw it into the fire. Uh, And since John the Baptist's understanding of the ministry of Jesus was the ministry of uh, judgment, of uh, something like the last judgment, what we understand that Jesus will do at the last judgment, uh, he never would have referred to Jesus as the Lamb of God, who atones for the sins of the world, although he doesn't say atone, does he? He says takes away the sin of the world, which does sort of fit with John's understanding in that you can take away sin more than one way. You can take away sin by taking away sinners. But nonetheless, this idea of a a lamb, meek and mild, uh, offering himself as atoning sacrifice for sin, that wasn't John's understanding. To which I would respond, and other more conservative scholars have responded, by saying, yes, John did not fully understand the the full ministry of Jesus. But that was typical of all the Old Testament prophets who did not distinguish between the first and second coming of Jesus Christ. They, They saw a Messiah coming who would be a savior from sin, but also who would bring in the fullness of the kingdom. They, they figured it would all happen at once and that wickedness would be expunged permanently uh, the first time the, the savior showed up. But, uh, and John, I think, shared in that, that misunderstanding, conflating or bringing together uh, the Old Testament teaching about the first and second coming of Jesus Christ, something that is made much clearer in the New Testament uh, through the teaching of Jesus and his apostles. But I think we can also say that that John was speaking here better than he knew, which again shouldn't surprise us. Uh, Peter tells us that all the Old Testament prophets searched their own prophecies trying to figure out 
when and how these things would be fulfilled. In other words, the Old Testament prophets never fully understood their own prophecies and said things that that were better than what they knew. John the Evangelist tells us that uh, in John chapter 11 that Caiaphas, the high priest, did that very thing. When when Caiaphas, the high priest, uh, in plotting the death of Jesus, said to to the leaders of Israel, it's better that one man die for the nation than that the whole nation die. Meaning, if we let Jesus live, he'll lead a rebellion and Rome will come in and destroy our nation. So better we get rid of him rather than Rome destroy our nation. But then John the evangelist tells us that Caiaphas wasn't really speaking for himself. He was speaking as high priest and he was prophesying regarding the death of Jesus on behalf of his people. Caiaphas was speaking better than he, than he knew, better than he, he himself understood. And I think we can say that, that many of the Old Testament prophets did that and, and John did that as well. Now, there is a picture, uh, an inference in the Old Testament about a lamb, a victorious lamb, and that comes to fuller expression in the in the, uh, gospel, in the uh, book of Revelation, which John the Evangelist also wrote, um, uh, the Lamb on the throne. And that, that inference is in the Old Testament. It's made explicit in the book of Revelation. And it's probably something like that that John has in mind when he uh, refers to Jesus as the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. But now we have to ask, John the Evangelist has recorded this for us who are post-Pentecost, who have a better understanding. How are we to understand these words better than John even understood them himself? Well, to understand the phrase, Lamb of God, we need to uh, go back in history to, to Mount Moriah and to Abraham and to Isaac, who are climbing Mount Moriah, ascending to uh, the top of the mountain and Isaac is carrying the wood and uh, Abraham carrying the fire and and uh, they uh, Isaac says to his father father here's the wood and here's the fire but where's the lamb and Abraham says God will provide the lamb there's a lamb a lamb of God a lamb from God that God will provide and indeed when they reach the top of the mountain Mount Moriah which was later to become the site of Jerusalem, there God provided an animal to die in place of the seed of Abraham, who as a sinner was righteously condemned to death. All sinners deserve to die. God did not do anything wrong by condemning Isaac to death. The wages of sin is death. Isaac was a sinner. He deserves to die. But God at the last minute provided a substitute, the Lamb of God was substituted for the seed of Abraham so that the seed of Abraham could live. The lamb died. Later, God himself would provide on Mount Moriah the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, Jesus Christ. That's a part of what is behind John's words. Also behind John's words are the Passover lamb, the Passover lamb in Egypt, who God said, take a lamb. Take a lamb from the lambs that I have providentially given you. Everything you have is from me, so these are my lambs. I want you to take one of them, kill it, and put its blood on the the door frame of the house so that when the angel of death comes and visits death on all who deserve it, because they are all sinners, you will be protected by the blood of the lamb, the lamb that God has provided, the lamb of God's. 
The Passover lamb is behind these ideas as well. And then there's Isaiah 53, which speaks of us as sheep who have gone astray, but especially speaks of the Messiah, led like a lamb to the slaughter. The Messiah would be led like a lamb to the slaughter. And why led to the slaughter? Because, in the words of Isaiah 53, he makes his life a guilt offering, and he will bear their iniquity. The lamb takes away our guilt The Lamb bears our iniquity and makes atonement for our sins. And by his stripes, we are healed. It is this that we need to keep in mind when we hear John say, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Uh, Every morning and evening in the temple, a lamb was sacrificed, again pointing to the need for atonement for the sins of the people. Well, John takes all these ideas, uh, the, the Lamb of God on Mount Moriah, the, the Passover Lamb, the Lamb of Isaiah 53, the, the daily Lamb of sacrifice. He combines it all in a new expression and calls Jesus the Lamb of God, the Lamb that God has provided. He is the Lamb that takes away the guilt of our sin by atoning for it, dying the death that we deserve to die, dying in our place so that we might be restored to life and fellowship with God. Now John says that this lamb isn't just for the Jews, he is for the world. Again, the Old Testament is filled with references to the fact that when the Messiah comes, he will bring blessing not just to the Jews, but to to all the nations of the world. That was evident. God's concern for the, for the whole world is evident uh, when Noah came out of the ark and God makes a covenant uh, with, uh, with all the earth. It was evident when he made his covenant with Abraham and said, through your seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed. It's uh, evident in the, uh, in the prophecy of Isaiah when it says of the Messiah, he will sprinkle many nations. Now John brings that idea that is manifest in the Queen of Sheba coming to to Israel and marveling at God's glory and so forth, the the foreigners who come into Israel and are blessed. He, He brings that idea to the fore. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now we need to keep in mind that the word world in John's Gospel has a very specific reference It's not to rocks and trees and skies and seas and and birds that sing. It's to mankind in rebellion against God. That's why John 3.16 is such an amazing statement. It's like God so loved the world, the world that, that, that rebels against him, the world that shakes his fist at him, the world that defies God and puts itself in the place of God. The world to whom Jesus came and it knew him not, but they despised him and he was rejected. God loves the world. Now for this, this world in rebellion, the Lamb of God has come. That doesn't mean that every person in the world will be saved without exception, but it does mean that salvation is without distinction among men. It's not limited to Israel but it is for every tongue and tribe and people and nation, for mankind without distinction of ethnicity or gender or class or nationality, male and female, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free. The Jews were looking for a political savior, but John pointed them to one who would take away the sin 
and the guilt of Jews and Gentiles alike for all who would come to him and receive him. He would restore them to fellowship with God, a deliverance far greater than any deliverance from Rome. John had previously borne witness to the superiority of the person of Jesus. Now he says, behold this Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now when he says, behold, he's not just addressing his own disciples. But God in his providence has preserved those words in scripture so that you would hear those words today. John the, the, the Baptist is saying to you, behold him, see him. You know, in the preaching of the gospel, a portrait is painted. Uh, when Paul writes to the Galatians and uh, bemoans the fact that they have so quickly turned away from the gospel that was preached to them, he, he asks them, How was Jesus portrayed before you? How was he portrayed? How was the portrait presented to you? What's he referring to? He's referring to the preaching. The preaching portrayed him. The preaching preaching painted a portrait of Jesus. And they they looked at that portrait of Jesus that, that is presented in the preaching of the Word. And John's saying to you, Look at that portrait. Look at him as the one who takes away the sin of the world. Look at him as the one who came to take away your sin. Now you may not think your sin is a big deal, but let me assure you that it is. It is your chief problem. It is a bigger problem than coronavirus. It is a bigger problem than life or death or anything in this world today. In fact, all the problems of the world that are so evident in this broken world, if you listen to the news every day, all of them come down to have their root in your sin and my sin. The sin of the human race, the sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve, and the corruption of the human race, that we are born and conceived in sin and that we commit sins day by day. Our sinful nature and the sins which we commit are the cause of all the problems in the world. Many think, you know, the world is basically good. You hear a lot of that today, especially those who want to tear down the structures of society. They say that, that, that life is, uh, human beings are, are basically good, but what makes us bad is, is corrupt structures. And if we can just tear down the structures, then uh, we can be free to to uh, be the good people that we are. We just need better structures and uh, therefore... uh, But no, the basic building block of society is not man-made structures. The basic building block of society is human beings. And no matter how you stack the blocks, if you start with broken blocks, you're going to have a broken pile, no matter how you, you arrange the pile. And sin is the number one issue in the world today. If we are to have peace, if we are to have love, if we are to have prosperity, we need to face the sin problem. And the way to face the sin problem is to behold the one 
who has come to take away the sin of the world, to be the Lamb of God, to offer his life as atoning sacrifice. It takes humility to admit that you're a sinner. But if you will indeed humble yourself and confess your sins and look in faith to Jesus Christ, you will be assured that he has indeed taken away all your sin. He has taken his iniquity upon himself. He lived the life we should have died. He died the death we deserve to die. He has done it all for us and set us free that we might live for him. Now John wants us to know how he came to know this. He tells us in verse 33, I did not know him. Now that sounds strange. I did not know him. Aren't they cousins? You know, Mary and Martha, Mary and Elizabeth were, were cousins and, and Mary visited Elizabeth when Elizabeth was pregnant and John the Baptist leaped in Elizabeth's womb when Mary spoke because Mary was pregnant with the Lord Jesus Christ. John and, and, and Jesus are second cousins. And certainly John and Elizabeth would have given uh, John the Baptist's parents would have Zachariah, would have Zachariah not John, <laughs> Zachariah and Elizabeth would have given instruction to John the Baptist as he was growing up about Jesus, uh, telling him about him and so forth. Now, they, he was raised uh, far away from Jesus, but uh, maybe was not acquainted with him by sight, but he certainly was acquainted with Jesus. But he says, I didn't know him. Not until I saw a sign. God gave him a sign. Uh, and uh, by that sign, he came to know him. He also heard a voice from heaven. Uh, J.B. Phillips, in his paraphrase of the New Testament, uh, I think draws out the inference well when he says, uh, has John the Baptist say, I did not know him by myself. I did not know him by myself. God had to open John's eyes to enable him to recognize Jesus as the, as the Lamb of God and the, the Son of God. Now, some of you may wish that, that God would give you such a a sign, and enable you to hear a, a voice from heaven. Or you may not wish that for yourself. You may wish that for your children or for your grandchildren or for, for a neighbor who, about whom you are praying that he would come to, to know Jesus. We, we want people to come to know Jesus. And sometimes we think it's going to have to take a miracle. It's going to have to take a voice from heaven. If, if only they could see a miracle or hear a voice from heaven, then they probably too would come to know Jesus the way John the Baptist came to know Jesus and not merely be acquainted with him. But don't you see that God has given us a sign and he has given us a voice from heaven. He has given us the voice of John the Baptist, which is the inspired word of God. And when, when you hear, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, though it comes through, through the, the, the mouth of a man, it is the word of God. Peter writes about the word of God that was preached to you, meaning that preaching, when preaching is faithfully represents what is in Scripture, you are hearing the word of God. And as for a sign, well, he's given you lots of signs. He's given you the miracles of Jesus, especially he has given you the resurrection of Jesus, 
the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. But you say, I haven't seen the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead yet. You, you and I haven't seen Christ physically raised from the dead, but we have the testimony of those who, who did see him, the testimony of those who sealed that testimony with their life rather than deny the testimony. You know, you have to ask yourself, how do you know anything from the past? That anything that happened before you were born or anything that happened outside of your geographic area that you can actually see with how do you know that that something happened that you didn't actually see whether it happened now or happened a hundred years ago well we know it by the testimony of of the eyewitnesses and how do we test the testimony of eyewitnesses? Well, we look for consistency and, and we look for sincerity and we look for uh, the courage of their convictions and so forth. And any historical criteria by which we know anything from the past can be applied to the resurrection of Jesus Christ and it comes out with straight A's, with flying colors. We know it as well as we know anything from the past by all the criteria by which we judge things that we haven't seen ourselves. It's only our stubbornness, our hard hearts, that causes us to doubt the word that we hear with our ears from, from God himself as we hear his word proclaimed. But now John wants us to know not only that he was given a sign and heard a voice, but he, he wants us to know what that sign was. Because it's significant, the sign that he saw. He said, I saw the Spirit descending as a dove and, and remaining on him. And I was told, the one whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, that's the one. Now what's this business? Is this just a, an arbitrary thing that, well, God decided to use a dove? Well, no, this has some biblical significance. The fact that the Spirit should be depicted as a bird has significance because right at the beginning of the Bible, the Spirit is depicted as a bird, where it says that the Spirit hovered over the deep. The, the word hovered, or it was, it was hovering, I think, uh, is the, the word. Um, that word is the same Hebrew word that is used in other parts of the Bible to describe a bird fluttering over its nest as it cares for its young. And so a, a verb that is associated with birds is used to describe the spirits. There are also doves in the Bible, particularly uh, the doves that Noah sent out from the ark to uh, see whether the earth had been uh, uh, renewed yet and was ready for habitation. He sent it out and it came back. He sent it out and it came back. He sent it out and it, it didn't come back. Uh, because it had found dry ground on the new earth, uh, the earth remade now. It had found a home on the earth, and so it remained on the earth. And now the, the, the dove comes down, and it remains. It remains on, on he who is the first of the new creation, Jesus Christ. It remains on him and anoints him for the work that he is called to do. And John tells us that, he only baptizes with water, but Jesus will baptize. Jesus, who has received the Spirit, is also the bestower of the Spirit, who baptizes with the Spirit, the Spirit that we need, the Spirit by which we are washed of our sins, and the Spirit by which we are strengthened for the work that he has called us to do. <coughs> this is the, the sign that, that uh, John sees. 
Jesus uh, says of himself, uh, the spirit of the, or Isaiah says in Isaiah 11, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. Isaiah 42 says, I will put my spirit on him. And then in Isaiah 61, the Messiah himself says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because he has appointed me uh, to uh, bear good news. Uh, the Spirit has been promised, and now John sees the fulfillment of the promise. Uh, the Spirit is associated with Jesus in prophecy. The prophecy now is materializes before John's eyes, and he says, that's how I know. God has showed me this sign that fulfills Scripture, Scripture regarding the dove, Scripture regarding uh, the descent of the, the dove and staying, and Scripture regarding Jesus being anointed with the Spirit, it all points to Jesus as the Messiah. We need the Spirit. We need the Spirit to wash away our sins. We need the Spirit to empower us, and we can rejoice and be glad that John has told us this Jesus, this Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, He is the one who gives us the Spirit to wash away our sins and strengthen us for our life of sanctification and who will finally glorify us and raise us from the grave. Now John tells us uh, again, uh, I, I did not know him. And before that, he says in verse 26, where I started reading, there stands among you one who you do not know. There stands among you one who you did not know. I didn't know him, but now I do know him. But now... He is among you, and, and you don't know him. There is an ignorance regarding Jesus, an ignorance that was evident then, and an ignorance that continues in the church today. There is a real sense in which it can still, still be said about a lot of people, you are acquainted with him, but you don't know him. Now, I know that's not true of all of you. I know that many of you do know him. You know, in the last week or so, we sang one of my favorite hymns here. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. I, I get choked up every time I sing that. I know a lady in Orange City who said that she bawled every time she, she sang that hymn. And I know some of you, many of you, I'm sure, cannot sing those words without, and, and think about them without getting choked up inside. And th that's what faith does. That's what faith produces in us. When we know Him, we love Him. And we are ashamed. We, we shed tears of sorrow for our sin and tears of joy that our sins have been forgiven and, and our hearts are deeply moved with love for Him. But I wish I had the confidence to say that that's true of every single person here today and every single person watching on Facebook or listening by the radio. I wonder sometimes whether some of those who, who don't join us or some of those who, who may even join us but, but keep an emotional distance away keep their distance because they know in their hearts they, they may be acquainted with Him, but they really don't know Him. They know they're really not a part of those who love Jesus Christ. There is an ignorance that we need to face up to, that you may be acquainted with Him, but not yet know Him. That was true of Nicodemus. 
Nicodemus was a teacher in Israel, a member of the covenant community, a leader of the people of God. And, and Jesus, when he said to him, you must be born again, he was saying, you don't know me yet. And there, were, there was Zacchaeus, a very successful businessman who was acquainted with Jesus, very curious about Jesus, somewhat afraid of Jesus. But not until he heard Jesus did Jesus say, Today salvation has come to this house. There's a time where in every person's life there is a transition from not knowing him to knowing him. Many of you have made that transition, but perhaps not all of you have made that transition. What hope is there for you? Well, your hope is that you're hearing this message. For you're hearing the word of Jesus Christ. You're hearing His voice in the preaching of the gospel. And that's a powerful voice. In John chapter 11, Jesus stood outside the grave of Lazarus. He had been dead for four days. His body had begun to rot and stink. And Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. What a foolish thing to say to a dead man. Imagine saying that at any funeral today to the body in the casket, come forth. People would look at you, are you crazy? Are you insane? No, Jesus was not crazy. Jesus was not insane. And lo and behold, Lazarus came forth because it was the voice of God. For the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Therefore, if you hear his voice today, harden not your hearts, but humble your heart. And say, yes, I haven't known him until this day, but today, today by his grace, he has opened my eyes to enable me to see him as the Lamb of God who takes away my sin, the Lamb of God who received the Spirit and now gives the Spirit to wash away my sins and strengthen me for that life that I've, I've been trying to live, but I could never do it on my own. Now, now by his grace, I can be a Christian. Not just try to be a Christian, but be a Christian. You know, it's said that Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great 20th century English preacher, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones had a test to test people whether they were truly Christian or not. And he would ask them, can you say right now that you are a Christian? Can you say right now that you are a Christian? And if they answered, well, I'm not sure. I'm trying, but I'm not sure I'm a Christian yet. Well, if they answered that way, then he knew that they were not Christians because the Christian is not trying to be a Christian. The Christian is one who knows that God has saved him. That despite the sin in my life, despite all the times I fall flat on my face trying to follow him, I am a Christian because He has saved me. He is the Lamb of God. He has taken away my sins. I don't have to cleanse myself. He has done it. Praise the Lord. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that when Peter made the good confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus assured him, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And so we pray now that that, Father in heaven, you would, through Jesus and through his voice, 
bring us to make that good confession and to rejoice in that confession day by day that Jesus is the Lamb who takes away our sin. Amen.